Hey there, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Mandates related to the COVID-19 vaccination campaign throughout the Western world and beyond have been an incredibly important as well as controversial topic that have now impacted the lives of millions of people, forcing them to face a choice between their livelihoods and compliance with government demands. Independent media has covered the mandate issue much more extensively than their mainstream counterparts, while also offering a diversity of opinions on the vaccines themselves, such as their purported efficacy and safety profiles versus the reality, as well as the ties between the global COVID-19 vaccination campaign and the effort to use COVID-19 vaccination credentials to widely implement biometric digital ID systems, among other uses. However, despite the liveliness of the debate and high public interest in this particular topic, relatively little attention has been given to one of the key agencies that has made these mandates possible in the U.S. and whose decisions are often used to justify public health policy abroad, the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. The FDA, which has been led by acting head Janet Woodcock for much of the COVID-19 crisis, is officially tasked with protecting public health through the approval, control, and supervision of prescription and over-the-counter pharmaceutical drugs, vaccines, medical devices, food and dietary supplements, and much more. However, numerous officials at the FDA have come under fire, including Woodcock herself, for conflicts of interest with the industries they are tasked with regulating and have been credibly accused, not just during COVID-19, but well before, of putting the interest of those industries far above the interests of public health. Joining me today to discuss corruption at the FDA and why the FDA's role with the COVID-19 vaccines is not only crucial to understanding the nature of these vaccine mandates, but also to challenging them, is Dr. Merrill Nass. Merrill Nass is an internal medicine physician with degrees from MIT and the University of Mississippi, and her areas of expertise include anthrax, biodefense, biological warfare, and Gulf War syndrome, as well as vaccine safety and efficacy. She was the first person in the world to have studied the characteristics of an epidemic and proved that it was due to biological warfare, and she has given seven testimonies to six different House and Senate committees on the anthrax vaccine, the anthrax letters, bioterrorism mitigation, and Gulf War syndrome. Dr. Ness's important work has continued well past her invaluable contributions to the anthrax case and anthrax vaccine controversies and into the present situation with COVID-19, as she has been working alongside Children's Health Defense to expose and challenge government corruption as it relates to the COVID-19 vaccination campaign, both in the U.S. and abroad. This is her second appearance on the Unlimited Hangout podcast, having first joined the show back on episode three, where we discussed in detail the 2001 anthrax attacks and the anthrax vaccine scandal. Welcome back to Unlimited Hangout, Dr. Nass. It's great to have you. (laughs) Thank you, Whitney. That must be the most amazing uh, intro I've ever gotten. (laughs) Appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, well, it's definitely well-deserved in my opinion. So I'm... One th- one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that I think um, a lot of people are aware that the COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. were first rolled out via emergency use authorization or EUA. And, but I, I also, I also think at the same time, not everyone knows exactly what that means. Um, and vaccine mandates are such a hot topic. I feel like, um, the legal side of this is, um, 
so uh undercovered and also a lot of people just aren't aware of a lot of the ins and outs of that which makes it hard especially for people who are looking to challenge these mandates uh so for those who may be unaware could you explain what an EUA legally means and then what has been controversial about these particular um emergency use authorizations Okay, let me start by giving you the history of EUAs, or emergency use authorizations. So during the Gulf War, which was 1990 to 91, um, hundreds of thousands of soldiers were given experimental products um, without informed consent, and then Gulf War syndrome happened, and there was no good documentation, at least provided to the public and to Congress, of who got what, when what might have caused this illness, which was a lot like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. Um, and so Congress um, demanded that the military keep better records and that they were no, and they, and the military was able to do this during the Gulf War because it had a memorandum of understanding with the FDA that it could get away with it. So, um, anyway, Congress required that uh, the, the defense medical surveillance system be created, which would include every vaccine, every, every drug that was given to soldiers, to service members at any military treatment facility, and would also um, identify where they had been deployed. So you could see what they may have been exposed to. Now, the anthrax vaccine program was started in 19, in March of 1998, they started giving anthrax vaccine to soldiers. Anthrax had never been used in, against an army, but it was felt to be kind of the, the quintessential old biological weapon because anthrax makes its own spore. So anthrax, even though it's a bacterium, creates a spore, which usually that's fungi, and it can cause a deadly, potentially deadly disease if you're not treated with antibiotics and you inhale it. Um, once it makes this spore, you can actually explode it from a bomb or spray it from an airplane and the spore protects it. So it sort of stays alive in suspended animation inside the spore. And when people inhale it and it gets into a favorable environment or a favorable environment in animals, um, it can then germinate and cause the illness anthrax. And because there was already an anthrax vaccine, um, it was felt that by starting to give soldiers this vaccine, they could sort of drum, the, the military medical establishment could drum up interest in a much larger program that would develop vaccines for ultimately up to 75 different illnesses that might be the result of biological warfare, and that by creating these vaccines and giving them to soldiers, they would have um, a cohort of soldiers who could then um, successfully fight in a biological warfare environment. So that was the theory. Um, you remember there were uh, the hot zone came out in the 1990s and um, Bill Clinton and his secretary of defense, who was from my state, uh, Cohen, um, were sort of sucked into to this. Mm -hmm. And probably they were sucked in because once you define biological warfare as a problem, it provides you a whole new um, ability to give 
poor contracts to companies that that you want to favor. So, right. When you have when you say biological warfare is an issue, there's there's no known antidotes, right? There there aren't vaccines. You don't know how much it's going to cost to produce um, things that might ameliorate these different diseases. So you create a wild west, and companies can any company that is good at you know bribing politicians or in some other way getting. Uh, getting funds to to produce things they can just jump into this without any necessarily any prior expertise um and of course that's what happened so there became a wild west and coincidentally then in 2001 there were the anthrax letters so the government then had an excuse and started spending an average of 7 billion dollars a year on these bioterrorism products and responses and tests. It also allowed new federal agencies to be created. So we got something called BARDA, which again, which itself was going was uh, doling out one and a half billion dollars a year for biodefense research or or, or early stage products. Um, now I work the anthrax vaccine that was used between 1998 and 2001 was extremely dangerous and probably made at least 10% of the people who received it ill, most chronically ill. Um, while we don't know all the reasons for that, we do know that the vaccines that were used during that period were had been stored, expired, and then been relabeled. And many of the lots had visible fungus growing or bacterial growing in the vials, and some had visible stopper material, bits of rubber. Um, the FDA, when it went in and inspected the factory at the end of 1997, prior to the rollout of the anthrax vaccine program in the military, shut the plant down immediately, you know, at the at the end of their inspection and quarantined 9 million of 11 million doses of vaccine mm -hmm. uh, because they were of such poor quality and unfortunately allowed 2 million to, to be used. And those 2 million doses were what made a lot of people sick and, and got really the entire, all the branches of the military fighting against this program. There were a number of congressional hearings beginning in 1999 about the program. FDA did not allow the manufacturer to reopen once they had shut it down until after the anthrax letters were sent. Um, and uh, there was, you know, a lot of, you know, I was on the national news answering questions about the vaccine. There are soldiers and military officers, especially pilots, did everything they could to fight against this program. One of the things uh, that uh, a coalition of us did was to try to get the license removed from the vaccine. And we succeeded in 2004. 
And that was an emergency use authorization license, or wh- wh- where does the e, uh, EUA factor um, into this discussion? Anthrax vaccine had been given a full license in 1970 by the by an organization in the NIH, not the FDA, which at that point was licensing vaccines. Because of the fact that they didn't do a good job and um, polio vaccines that were known to to cause polio had been released. Mm -hmm. Uh, This division was transferred from the NIH to the FDA in 1972. But anthrax vaccine had already been given a license despite a real lack of efficacy and safety information. So it was fully licensed. But when it was transferred to FDA, FDA was supposed to go over all the licenses that had been issued by NIH and make sure they were good. And they were never able to complete the process for anthrax vaccine. So it was licensed, but it was, but there was no final rule had been issued and the paperwork was a mess. Um, as I said, there was, the safety data had been collected for only 48 hours after giving a shot. And, um, the efficacy data was only um, acceptable for skin anthrax and not inhalation anthrax, which was the use, the indication that it was being given to soldiers for. So in 2004, we got uh, a federal district court judge, Emmett Sullivan, to take the license away and tell FDA to redo it. But the military were so... um, anxious to keep this program going for whatever reason, because soldiers didn't really need it. You know, there hasn't been, it still hasn't been any anthrax used on soldiers. Um, that the EUA appeared out of nowhere within a few weeks. So there was no, there was no emergency use authorization until, um, 2004, 2005. And it And as soon as it was created, it was immediately slapped on the anthrax vaccine after the judge had taken away the license so that the military could continue using the vaccine on soldiers. And so we went back to court and and so they were mandating it with under EUA. And so we went back to court and the judge said, look, no. You know, we can ask these soldiers to risk their lives in combat, but they didn't sign up to be guinea pigs. And this is an experimental product. By law in the United States, if a if a drug or vaccine does not have a full unrestricted license it is, and you use it, it's an experimental product. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you are overtly doing an experiment or collecting data, it's still falls under experimental product and you have to follow the laws for experimental products. Now the military thought they could create this new gray zone where it wasn't an experimental product and it wasn't a licensed drug. And they, and again, they create a wild West where they can get away with anything. Judge said no. And that is basically the standard for EUAs. You cannot mandate an EUA product. It is experimental. Now, the law, the statute that tells you how to use an emergency use authorized product is 21 U.S. Code 360 BBB3. And I've got it in front of me, obviously. Um, and it 
has a lot of requirements. So this doesn't have as quite as strict requirements as a, a subject would be um, have to experience if they were overtly in a scientific experiment. So if you're doing human research, you have to disclose a lot of information to your subjects. This reduced the information, but is very specific about what has to be done to make to to legally use an EUA product. And this includes, quote, um, appropriate conditions designed to ensure that individuals to whom the product is administered are informed um, of the significant known and potential benefits and risks of such use and of the extent to which such benefits and risks are unknown and of the option to accept or refuse administration of the product. There you go. No mandate. You have the right to accept or refuse the consequences, if any, of refusing administration of the product and of the alternatives to the product that are available and of their benefits and risks. You also need appropriate conditions for the monitoring and reporting of adverse events associated with the emergency use of the product. Okay, I've just excerpted from that law. Mm-hmm. So where it says you have to be um, apprised of the consequences, um, lawyers have discussed this because this is now an old law about 15 years old uh, and have thought that given the, the context of this law, given everything else in it, that consequences means the medical consequences, that you might catch the disease if you don't use it rather than consequences, meaning you could be punished if you don't take it, okay? That's important because people are using the fact that consequences are mentioned in this law as a justification to mandate. You know, you can you can refuse to take it, but we can fire you. Those are your consequences. And um, I guess this needs to be litigated. Right now there's just articles where lawyers discuss what it means. But I'm not sure there is any real um, settlement of the of the language. Okay, so why was the EUA created? Well, it was created to allow the use of experimental products, right? But if you read the Congressional Research Service um, booklets on the EUA, they say it was created to take away liability from the product. And I think that was the main reason this was created. So if you receive an EUA product, just as if you were an experimental subject in research in the United States, you have no ability to sue the manufacturer unless you can prove willful misconduct and the secretary of DHHS allows you to go ahead with a lawsuit and supports it. Well, that's a tall order uh, these days. <laughs> right, exactly. It's a bar that has never been met. So it's impossible to sue the manufacturer. Congress set up a program that is distinct from all other programs to try to create something through which you could have redress if you were injured. But they created a program that by its nature and also by the way it has been administered, 
um, is almost meaningless. So there's something called the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. That's what if so, if you're injured from anthrax vaccine while it's an EUA, smallpox vaccine while it is an EUA, or any of the COVID drugs and vaccines under EUA, which is almost all of them, except more recently remdesivir and except recently the Pfizer vaccine only in adults, the only thing you can do if you feel you've been injured is apply to this program to, to get benefits. And the only benefits you can get are lost wages and unpaid medical bills. So if you already have insurance that covers those things, you can't collect, even if you can prove your injury was due to the product. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 15 years that this program has been alive, it has only paid out 29 claims. And so far, it has not paid out a single claim for any COVID product. So as as Mary Holland said, it just gives you the opportunity to apply and get nothing. Um, There's a one-year statute of limitations, which is extremely short, from the time you receive the product, not from the time you realize you've been injured. So that means people who who received um, drugs, uh, remdesivir, for example, or monoclonal antibodies, more than a year ago and were injured, they've, that statute of limitations has passed and they cannot apply for anything. Um, and all the people who are in the clinical trials um, probably cannot apply and get anything. If they, were, if they got the, the drug or vaccine before an EUA was issued, they, have no, they can't go into this program and request money. <clears throat> so... Um, So what we have now in the United States is we have a a lot of COVID vaccines. We have only one that was actually licensed by the FDA on August 23rd. Once a product is licensed, it can, the, the manufacturer can be sued for damages. So that product was not made available in the United States. Because the it, under EUA, you couldn't sue Pfizer or anyone else. And the Johnson & Johnson and the Moderna vaccines are all completely under EUA. Right. And the Pfizer vaccines for children or, or the later, the, the booster doses are also under EUA. So you can't sue for that. So the Biden administration had said all summer that there were going to be mandates mm-hmm. for, for children, for College students, there are going to be mandates for workers. There are going to be mandates because the Pfizer vaccine, unlike the other two, was licensed for age 16 and up. Basically, theoretically, I mean, according to the law, once you've got a full license, a mandate is legal, right? While you're under EUA, a mandate is not legal. Right. But once you've got a license, it is. So what the Biden administration must have demanded is that FDA issue a license. But Pfizer, of course, didn't want their product to be used under law. And I'm saying Pfizer and the government as if they're two separate entities. But they're in this case, they're really not. The federal government, you know, got vaccines, chose to purchase vaccines that were designed by Pfizer and BioNTech. Pfizer bought something from BioNTech. And then they, these companies, 
subcontracted to other companies to produce the ingredients or to produce the full vaccine. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of different entities involved in this. And the federal government has approved whatever it was that was done. And, you know, may have, while I'm blaming Pfizer in what I'm saying, this stuff may be coming from the federal government. I mean, I think we're in a situation similar to Nazi Germany during World War II, where the uh, industries and the government are so blended together that it's it's difficult to separate them. So the federal government right. um, is being managed now mostly by contractors who work for companies rather than working directly for the federal government. Well, I think there's also the conflict of interest in the sense that a lot of the doses of the vaccine were were purchased by the U.S. government for use even before there was an emergency use authorization issued or even in some cases before there was really even any published data about their um, purported safety and efficacy profiles. Right. So, you know, they're going to spend millions of dollars on a product. They obviously want that to get used at some point, uh, even before there's the, um, you know, uh, official authorizations or licenses or whatever. So there's, you know, that element too. Right. So you use, but I mean, you could also store it. So for instance, the federal government is storing many millions of doses of anthrax vaccine and smallpox vaccine in case of emergency. So they can use the ex- that excuse. Um, you would think that if the product is dangerous and causes people to be disabled, they would have to pay a lot because people can still right, apply for Social Security disability. That's a different program than trying to get money out of the manufacturer. And the federal government would have to pay for their disability if they met those criteria. So you would think that the government doesn't really want to disable its own citizens. But in any event, it's hard to separate who is doing what and why. Um, but the, the federal government needed a license in order to enforce mandates, in order to impose mandates that it promised it was going to impose. And the only way to do that was to license a product. And so FDA gave Pfizer a license, but none of the licensed product was available. And the, the idea was to fool the American citizens into thinking they were now getting licensed products. And when I and Children's Health Defense made this clear, when we started explaining this to people, um, and by the way, the article we wrote that explained this was the top article ever read on the Children's Health Defense website, um, the federal government had to scratch their head and say, duh, how can we, you know, get over this little problem that people people know what we're doing? And they realize this bait and switch. Uh, yeah. So then a deal was made between the, the feds, the FDA and and Pfizer that some of the EUA lots supposedly were, quote unquote, made under licensed conditions, unquote. And therefore, FDA said these e, these lots that had already been authorized as EUA could be used interchangeably as licensed. Well, I don't think there's any law that allows that to happen. Yeah, because isn't isn't the fully licensed uh, Pfizer product? It's under the brand name Comer Comer Natty, right? Yeah. yeah. So this uh, what what you're saying is that they were saying that the the a non Comer Natty product. 
that was being used, the Pfizer EUA vaccine, they were saying that that uh, was produced under conditions that they retroactively decided were equivalent to the production of Comirnaty, even though it's not the same product. And exactly. that it's equivalent. Yeah, that's pretty insane. Um. And so that that's illegal. Yeah. And and yes, then, <laughs> very um, illegal sounding. <laughs> and they said, well, you could look you can look up the QR code and we'll specify a few QR codes that would meet these criteria. But that wasn't enough. And people were still saying, I want the bottles that say Comirnaty. So then we hear the military started relabeling vials, EUA vials as Comirnaty. That too is illegal. So now that hasn't been done in the civilian world. As far as we know, it's only been done in the military world because again, the military has even more, you know, they have more uh, ability to, to do these kind of illegal things and get away with it. Yeah. Well, they, they've done it before with the but, anthrax vaccine, right? Exactly. So I guess they have some They're experience, you could say. Things. Yeah. Uh, but in the civilian world, basically everyone is still only getting EUA product, and so legally it can't be mandated. Um, however, their employers are requiring it, and the few legal cases have either been thrown out uh, on the basis of, of technicalities or are just going through the system and taking a long time, so people are being you know, are caving in, they've had to cave in or lose their jobs, even though they've been subject to a completely illegal process. Has, has Spicer commented on uh, if and when they'll make Comirnaty, since that's the fully licensed product available to the public? I mean, from what I understand, it's really not even uh, available in the U.S. still, right? Despite the the full licensing. <laughs> And they said it would take a few months. They they sort of indicated that they were wanting the EUA to be used up first. Now, what happens is Pfizer's product, unlike the other two, was approved and was authorized first and then licensed and approved for ages that included 16 and 17. And 16 and 17 are children. And because they had those two years, they were able to push it to the CDC and get the CDC to approve putting the vaccine on the childhood schedule. That doesn't mean necessarily that every child is going to get it, but CDC's uh, advisory committee voted for that and the CDC director approved it. And what that means is that the Pfizer vaccine for, for, for the 16 and 17 year olds, not the EUA, but um, this licensed product, which is only for the first two doses and only for age 16 and up, is now on the childhood schedule. And that entitles it to a completely different waiver of liability through the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. And so once it's been uh, a notice has been issued in the Federal Register and a tax of 75 cents per um, dose has been added to it. That, that the, At that point, the Comirnaty vaccine will provide Pfizer with another liability shield, and they will be able to make the product available in the U.S. And that may only take weeks, months. 
Well, that is uh, just totally nuts. I I knew it was bad, but that is um, I I'm I'm left a little speechless. So I, I'm curious uh, what you mentioned about the the CDC uh, this being added to the childhood uh, vaccine schedule. Could that potentially be used to require 16 and 17 year olds in high school that they have? Uh, Absolutely. The, yeah. Absolutely. That is what is about to happen. And in California, they've already said these kids are are not going to be allowed to attend in-person school age 16 and 17 um, in January in the next semester. Well, okay. Um, and so a lot has been said, of course, about um, concerns about that particular age group getting uh, the RNA vaccines, uh, concerns about heart inflammation, myocarditis. Um, based on what you've um, observed in the data that you've seen, uh, what are your opinions on that? I believe the risk of myocarditis is extremely high from the COVID vaccines. And it has the younger the age group that you look at, the higher the risk. So, so far we have, we have been shown data for the 12 to 17 year age group. And the risk is extremely high, a hundred times higher in terms of reporting the vaccine adverse event reporting system than it is for, for in, in males age 12 to 17 than in males above age 65, 100 times higher. Now, um, and that means about one in every three to 5,000 uh, young males that received this vaccine has reported a case of myocarditis to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Now, that system is, is passive reporting. You have to know it exists. You have to know you have myocarditis and you have to take a lot of time out of your busy schedule because it takes about a half an hour to report anything because they've got a very fiddly um, online system. You used to be able to just call it in or send a letter, but now it's become very complicated. So now let me go back to the smallpox vaccine. Smallpox vaccine has been given to soldiers um, since 2003, again, as part of the stupid uh, protect our soldiers against biowarfare program. Yeah. Protect them against theoretical threats, <laughs> basically. Yeah, exactly. You know, this, is, this is a way basically to get money to our friends who make smallpox vaccines or smallpox drugs. When we can spend a lot of money on these programs. And, it, and surpri unsurprisingly, the company that bought the anthrax vaccine in 1998, they got the, the, a partner of the founder and major shareholder of that company, the, who was Fuad Al-Hibri, his, his, uh, one of his former partners was uh, Dr. Robert Cadillac. And Cadillac was made the uh, Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Preparedness and Response. Mm -hmm. And Cadillac role between 2017 and 2021 January, gave um, the anthrax vaccine manufacturer contracts for over $2 billion. So they became his number one contractor in terms of uh, the value of the contracts. And that company, which owned the anthrax vaccine, when they thought he was going to become the assistant secretary, they bought up the smallpox vaccine. <laughs> right. So um, they only... Recently, they also bought up Narcan, um, which is the antidote for um, overdoses of narcotics. For the and opioid the, crisis, yeah. Mm -hmm. For the opioid crisis. And as soon as they bought up that product, 
suddenly their their lobbying was very successful. The states started buying this product like mad and handing it out for free to um, homeless shelters and food banks and needle exchange places and oh, and schools. Yeah, so the, there's a video of the CEO of Emergent Biosolutions talking about high schools and colleges as untapped markets for Narcan. Exactly. Um, that's how they see this, uh, the whole opioid crisis, those guys <laughs> opening up untapped markets to have uh, Narcan absolutely everywhere. Right. And they had another assistant secretary of HHS, you know, tweeting about uh, the importance of obtaining the product. And sales went up 600%. So that's what lobbying achieves. Anyway, the, the military started giving all the soldiers smallpox vaccines. And there was also an old study in military service members from Finland. When they looked closely at the soldiers in Finland from the late 70s, they found one in 30 had um, EKG changes, suggesting they might have myocarditis. And an initial study by the military showed only about one in 15,000 actually was referred to a specialist and um, for myocarditis after smallpox vaccine. But then another study was done and published in 2015 in the military, and they looked at over a thousand soldiers who were getting smallpox vaccine for the first time. It's one dose. And they did, drew blood before and after. And they found that actually one, and so they looked closely at these a little over a thousand people and found that one in 220 was actually getting myocarditis with symptoms, a clinical case. And that in terms of the blood draws, one in 30 was going up from a normal level of cardiac enzymes to more than twice the upper limit of normal. So they had chemical evidence of myocarditis, one in 30 of soldiers. Wow. So, yeah. um, so it's always a question of how hard are you going to look? So if we looked at, te- if we actually did a study like that in teenagers, what would we find? Would we find it's one in 5,000 or would we find it's one in 30? We don't know. Nobody knows. And the federal government and, and and Pfizer are doing their best to never look, you know, never collect the right data to find this. So that despite claiming that they have massive databases, I mean, the FDA and CDC were claiming they had access to about 20 different databases of all sorts, medical records, insurance records, pharmacy records, et cetera, to be able to do Fancy studies of of safety, of what would happen to people after they got these vaccines. Almost all of that data is hidden, and only a little tiny bit is given to the public, as well as the VAERS data, because that has always been open to the public. And they've controlled the the dissemination of information about what do these vaccines actually do in in terms of side effects. So that's where we are now. Uh, in a recent interview you did, you talked about how there was a, earlier this year, they started, uh, I can't remember if it was the FDA, the CDC, or both, um, released a new algorithm for analyzing VAERS data uh, earlier yes. this year and also the vaccine safety database. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so in January of this year, the CDC issued a little uh, brochure, which wasn't for public consumption, and I'm not sure how exactly it got out, if it was leaked or not. 
it was 20 or 30 pages, and it talked about, you know, some changes to the ways they were going to analyze theirs. And, the, and you know, inserted in this, in small print, was a new algorithm they were going to use, which would compare one vaccine to another vaccine, or one vaccine at one point in time to, to the same vaccine at a different point in time. And they actually suggested that it be compared to vaccines that have very high rates of side effects. Um, the algorithm that they suggested using was totally inappropriate for this purpose. I, I can't remember the acronym for it, but it basically... Do we know the manufacturer, it, like who created the algorithm? No, no, this is an algorithm. It's an algorithm that exists. It, it can uh, be used okay. for certain kinds of analysis, um, but it should not be used in this setting. What it does is compared to the pattern of side effects in two vaccines. So if one vaccine has the same pattern of side effects as the other, but in, you know, and they both cause myocarditis, they both cause Bell's palsy, they both cause blood clots but one causes those side effects a million times more than the other. By using this algorithm, you smooth that out and they both look the same. Oh my and God. then you can say there's no signal. And that's what CDC did. Ooh. Well, that's a doozy. That sort of um, makes me think of something that was done with the AstraZeneca trials last year, where the placebo was a problematic, uh, I, I believe, measles vaccine that they were comparing to the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. And that sort of uh, what the, the, what you said sort of erased the signal that there was any the, any sort of problem uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which, you know, after it was um, given emergency use uh, approval in, in the EU and other places was one of the first to be uh, banned for at least certain age groups uh, because of blood clots and all of this stuff. But in their trials, they used a, uh, they didn't use an actual like saline placebo. Right. They used um, a, a vaccine. I forget exactly what it was, but it, it caused, it, it was known to cause side effects similar to what the AstraZeneca one ended up doing. And so by using that as the placebo, they could sort of mask uh, those concerns. So this seems like an algorithmic way to essentially do the same on a large scale. Yes. Um, I believe you're thinking of trials in Latin America that use the meningococcal A, the ACYW35 vaccine um, against a COVID vaccine. In the United States, it was claimed that they did use saline placebos. But in most vaccine trials, and as far as I know, all of the recent, like 10 to 20 years back vaccine trials, um, they compare the, the trials vaccine to another vaccine, which is a really good way of, um, you know, reducing, uh, any appearance of a problem. Uh, so they do try to pick a vaccine to compare it with that's going to have similar side effects. And then all you have to say is, well, the side effect profiles were the same in the two vaccines, so there's no problem. But what you're not proving is that the side effect profile of the first vaccine meant it was safe. You're just saying the two are similar. And that that is what was done. But um, I think the FDA claimed that in the U.S., now the trials for all these vaccines were held in multiple countries around the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the U.S. they claim, but but the data that the FDA used for e issuing an EUA or a license was international. Interesting. Okay. 
wasn't entirely sure about that. Yeah, there were, there have been a lot of, um, international, uh, studies, uh, particularly in, uh, where I live in Chile. You know, it's been one of the main, uh, guinea pigs for Coronavac, the Cenovac, um, vaccine. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I haven't really heard as much, um, uh, critical coverage about that particular vaccine, probably because it's not in use really in, in the West so much. And a lot of the coverage, mm-hmm. um, or I guess critical coverage of the vaccination campaign is ongoing in the West. Um, but, uh, are, are you familiar with anything, uh, related to that particular, uh, vaccine? Because some of the trials done for that, it's been mainly Chile and Brazil, I think, um, have been the focus for that. But in some cases, they've tried to basically, uh, force entire towns to participate in experimental trials. Um, and, and I know right. that's been happening in, in Brazil. Yeah, um, I haven't, I have to admit, because uh, I sort of know what the screwy things are that happen here in trials. But since I'm unfamiliar with, with what happens in other countries, I, I don't really look at it because I don't know how to assess what's going on. No, that's fine. I was just uh, curious because there's really no one <laughs> here, here in Chile doing that work, for example. Uh, though I know it's not it, it's not an RNA vaccine, right? It's like an inactivated, right. um, I guess, spike protein or something. I'm not exactly fully familiar with it, um, but it's a, it's a little different. So I but I wasn't sure if there was any information on its um uh, on its like safety profile or anything. Cause there really is no coverage of that here, uh, of that here. We definitely need, uh, some Merrill Nasses in, in Chile. <laughs> uh, that's for sure. But oh well, uh, at least the U.S. has one. So, um, uh, turning to another, uh, topic, um, about, well, related topic, uh, about these, um, these EUAs. Uh, there's been obviously since the initial EUAs, there's been two, uh, more controversial, uh, steps taken in that process, one involving the, the booster doses, and then, of course, the approval or EUA approval for uh, young children and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, children under the age of 18. And then uh, I guess it's uh, five and up now in the U.S., if I'm not mistaken. Um, right. So both of those were, were really controversial, even within the FDA. Um, so I want to ask you about uh, those processes uh, specifically. So um First of all, the FDA decisions regarding boosters, uh, when that was made, uh, there were actually two, um, if I'm not mistaken, two high profile vaccine regulators from the FDA who actually uh, spoke out against it. Uh, they obviously appeared to have been ignored by the FDA um, itself. And it appears that for booster doses, there was actually a lot of um, disagreement within uh, the establishment, the FDA and the CDC about um whether or not to issue or to approve uh, booster doses, at least for the vast majority of the population, I think the controversy was uh, less uh, marked in the case of immunocompromised or elderly adults. Um, could you talk a little bit about that situation? Yeah. So the woman who is uh, Marion Gruber, a German woman who has been at FDA for, like, I don't know, 25 or 30 years um, and basically was in charge of the vaccine approval process, even though Peter Marks is the head of Center for Biologics at FDA, under which is, um, you know, the umbrella under which vaccines fit. She was really the the hands-on person, and she resigned, and her deputy, um, Krause, Phil Krause, resigned also, and co-published with some other people an article in The Lancet. Um, criticizing the the booster um, EUAs. Now, 
these are people who I think, you know, have a long history of both not telling the truth, you know, pushing for decisions that didn't make scientific sense. And also, you know, working with basically globalist organizations and or, you know, working within the whole system to try to impose um, medical policies throughout the world. So I, neither of these people are, are people that I would necessarily trust. I will say that the what happened is that FDA and CDC were a little bit caught in their own lies because on the one hand, they were saying these vaccines are so effective and that the efficacy has only dropped a tiny bit. So the claim was the efficacy of the vaccines was still up around 85% after six months and it only dropped from you know a supposed 95% to a supposed 85%. Well, if it's only dropped that much in six months, that's not really enough to justify boosters, especially in normal people and and especially in young people, for because the the fall off in efficacy is at the higher age groups and in the more frail, ill people. So, in order to justify the boosters, you know, they they had to come up with you know cockamamie theories of of why they were necessary. And maybe these two people didn't really want to go along with the cockamamie theories. But, you know, I I just have trouble um, accepting that. So maybe they just wanted to cash in after all their hard work for, you know, the elites and get other jobs somewhere else. And this was uh, um, anyway, or perhaps they knew that the advisory committee was going to vote against the boosters for all but a tiny uh, segment of the population. And maybe that's why they went through this um, rigmarole. The, the advisory, both advisory committees, the, these are so supposedly independent. They're not really, they're almost all vaccine researchers um, who are paid by the vaccine manufacturers. But by federal law, these agencies have to have civilian advisory committees. And so the FDA advisory committee voted against giving the um, a general authorization for the booster dose. And so then it was put to them, just how about just for the elderly and people at high risk and those who are um, at high risk of severe disease? Now, that was another. So let's think about this. Who's at high risk of severe disease? People who are very obese, people with asthma, uh, people with diabetes. Okay, we know that. That's That's been established. What the FDA did was to play with that language deliberately. There was another bait and switch and claim that people with jobs facing the public were at high risk. No, they are at high risk of catching the disease. They're not at high risk of a severe case. Let me talk about that difference. If you get a case, you will then be immune probably for the rest of your life. If it's not a severe case, that's going to be much better than getting the vaccine, right? You want, I mean, and probably most people with jobs facing the public have already gotten the disease because CDC um, at a recent advisory committee about 
three weeks ago said they estimated 147 million Americans, which is almost 50 percent, had already had COVID. Um, but this, so you, you don't necessarily want to stop people from having a mild disease. That would be a favorable thing to have happen. You want to stop people from having a life-threatening disease. Well, <laughs> of course, very few would have a life-threatening disease if you allowed them access to hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, you know, and other things that are effective and keep people out of the hospital. But anyway, the FDA... Um, claimed that they could that when they when the advisory committee finally voted in favor of high risk people um the wording was changed so that it was pe- so that it was included people with all sorts of you know jobs where they're exposed to a lot of other people would be included even though most of them young people working grocery stores for instance are not at any higher risk than anyone else of a severe disease. And probably because they've been exposed, you know, over the last two years, probably at lower risk. So, so that, that happened. And then, then it was brought. So the FDA gets to decide how a drug or vaccine should be licensed, what the approval specifications should be. But then the CDC then has to go through a process and approve the drug or vaccine approve what demographics a drug or vaccine should be recommended for, primarily vaccines. So in this case, the advisory committee, again, they went with their sister advisory committee at FDA and voted against a general recommendation for booster doses. Um, And then, (laughs) just like at FDA, the, the head of CDC, Rochelle Walensky, went and uh, did not sign off on their recommendation and changed it, which, according to STAT, this is only the second time in history that that's happened. And so basically the boosters were, were opposed for a much wider swath of the community. And as you can see now, they've been approved for everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I did an investigation into, into Moderna, right? Um, and... Uh, Basically, mm-hmm. what, what's pretty apparent there is that if they didn't secure um, booster dose approval for a broad swath of the population, it was going to be very problematic for them uh, because basically, you know, the COVID-19 uh, vaccine they produce is their only uh, mar- product on the market, really. Um, and that's also, you know, true for a lot of uh, some of the cases you've brought up. So emergent biosolutions, previously Bioport, you know, back when the anthrax vaccine uh, was their only product on the market. If, if they hadn't uh, benefited from those acts of government corruption, they would have collapsed as a company. Um, and, you know, in the case of uh, Moderna's vaccine, uh, COVID-19 vaccine, if boosters weren't approved and that was, you know, uh, something they could only sell <laughs> over the course of mm-hmm. uh, 2021, for example, you know, they would be back in the same dire financial situation they were at the very end of 2019 uh, or, or really pre-March 2020 when they were uh, facing complete collapse. Um, so it seems like, you know, these, uh, booster doses essentially had to happen, uh, for the benefit of these companies. And of course, uh, the U.S. government has invested, I think now it's like around six billion dollars in the Moderna vaccine developed in partnership with the NIH. Uh, there's several prominent NIH researchers who get royalties, um, or are expected to get royalties, uh, from the Moderna vaccine. I know they're sort of arguing about some patent stuff now. Um, some of them anyway. 
Um, so it mm-hmm. seems like there <laughs> was no shortage of conflict of interest there, especially in the case of the FDA, which is an agency uh, where a lot of the top people have been cu- accused time and again of, um, you know, prioritizing the interest of drug and, and vaccine manufacturers over over public health. Um, and who I mentioned, the, the acting head of the FDA over much of this period, I mentioned this in the introduction to this podcast, is uh, Janet Woodcock. And earlier this year in January, um, she was being considered potentially to permanently head the FDA. Uh, and at that time, there were about, I think, 28 groups focused on combating the opioid epidemic in the U.S. who urged the Biden administration not to appoint her, uh, saying of Woodcock, quote, in its opioid decision making, Dr. Woodcock and the division she supervised consistently put the interest of opioid manufacturers ahead of public health often overruling its own scientific advisors and ignoring the pleas of public health groups, state attorney generals, and outraged victims of the opioid crisis, end quote. And some of what you laid out there in the case of the booster doses sort of seems to be uh, a similar uh, pattern in a sense, putting the interests of drug manufacturers first, overruling uh, their own advisory committees, ignoring, uh, you know, uh, concerns from the public and, and what have you. Um, so this seems to be more, uh, I don't know, uh, something the FDA uh, has done for a long time and not just with COVID-19. Yes. I mean, Janet Woodcock was dinged in the Lancet when she was the head of the drug section of FDA 20 years ago for carrying on a secret arrangement with a drug company to bring a drug that had already been taken off the market because it was too dangerous and trying to create a method for bringing it back. And so she had her advisory committee and her regular process going on but she had the secret agreement also, and a whistleblower had, had given that to the Lancet, and they wrote a, a searing expose on it, and you would have thought she would have lost her job then and never been allowed back, and here she is. You know, she was rapidly rehabilitated and uh, been running the FDA for the last year. Yeah, well, previously she ran, I believe it's called uh, the section of the FDA, the CDER, Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. And if I'm not yes. mistaken, the woman, I forget her name, it's an Italian uh, last name. The woman that took that mm-hmm. over after she left uh, was previously uh, an executive at Pfizer, um, who's now overseeing that part. Yes. No, Woodco- Woodcock is a is a bad um a bad actor, but she she brought in Ad Aduhelm, you know, this fifty six thousand dollar a year drug that's dangerous for Alzheimer's. Right. Mm-hmm. And and Three members of the advisory committee quit because they almost um, unanimously voted against licensing the drug. And then the FDA went and licensed it anyway. And they went, the three separately went public and said, this process is a sham. This was, this happened about four months ago. Yeah, well, it happened before, I think, some of these, uh, like the full licensing of the Pfizer uh, vaccine for adults and the, the booster dose discussion and all of that. So I guess those uh, voices that resigned over the Alzheimer drug, uh, it's very possible they would have been critics of those subsequent decisions. So I have seen some well, speculation. Diff- oh, mm-hmm. Actually, there's different advisory committees. Oh, are they? So, oh, okay. Yeah. So there's a, a number of different drug advisory committees. So that they the neurologic drug advisory committee was where the people quit, but nobody has uh, quit uh, on the vaccine advisory committee, but FDA took uh, about half or a little more than half of the regular members of the, that committee off 
supposedly perhaps for conflicts of interest, and replaced them with about 10 temporary members at the, right when they started bringing in the COVID vaccines, which is very interesting. So they seem to have changed the makeup of that committee so they could get these votes that they wanted. Wow. And so they can, they can just do that at their, their discretion, decide who to take off and who to bring on uh, without any you know, sort of oversight. No, I don't know what that process is, but they did take all these people off and replace them with people, many of whom did have conflicts of interest, the replacements. There are two people on the FDA Advisory Committee for Vaccines that are CDC officers, officials, whose job is to push the COVID vaccines. Wow. Okay. Well, that definitely merits looking into, you know, the people they took off uh, and their conflicts of or alleged conflicts of interest uh, in comparison to the people who were put on that have, um, as yeah. you mentioned, I think there's a um, an article from Children's Health Defense actually going around about the um, conflicts of interest of some of these, uh, I guess, more recently appointed members. Um be interesting to see a comparison on that. So um, as we get close to wrapping up here, um, I wanted to ask you about um, obviously everywhere on, on the news these days, <laughs> last couple of days, um, is concern over a new variant from South uh, Africa that people presumed would be called the new variant, but is now uh, the Omicron uh, variant. Um uh, or scaring it rather, because based on what we know so far, uh, there's really no data about, uh, transmissibility. Uh, just recently, just, uh, uh I think right before, uh, we started recording this episode, uh, the head of the South African Medical Association said that this variant only causes mild disease. Um, but despite that, we're seeing countries along, uh, around the world doing flight bans, uh, Israel talking about declaring a state of emergency, I believe the state of New York, and the U.S. actually has already preemptively uh, declared a state of emergency uh, over this variant. So what are, what are, what are your thoughts about um, uh, the Omicron variant and what, what it means? Uh, um, so I don't know how to pronounce it, but I like to call it Omicron. Um, so- <laughs> okay, sure. However... Uh, so I read the Washington Post article yesterday and the stat article about this new variant, and neither one uh, was able to provide a single bit of information on how uh, on serious, you know, illness that it caused. The only thing that was mentioned was the fact that it was thought to be very transmissible because it caused high titers in the in the throat and nose. Um there was I was also sent by Fran Boyle something from a scientist at the Rockefeller Center, Rockefeller University, who said that they had um in the lab created a similar uh version of, of COVID like Omicron with with similar very large number of mutations. And um, huh. he wondered if this meant that Omicron might have been made in a lab. And so I, it's too early to comment on that, but something to keep in the back of your mind. Um, my feeling is, is that the, the powers that be are desperate to keep the fear going. And as more and more people are realizing that they don't need masks and they don't need to hide from this, and that because these vaccines do not prevent transmission... The, the corollary of that is that everyone is going to have to get this infection. 
And so hiding it isn't going to help. You're just going to be older when you get it. Um, instead, what you should do is make yourself healthy, lose weight if you can, you know, take the right supplements, vitamins, uh, have it, try to access the medications you will need when you get it, and then get it. Um, so anyway, the, the powers that be want to keep the fear going, right? They, they need this pandemic to bring in the 5 and 6G, to, to bring in more surveillance, to try to change, uh, you know, uh, our way of life, to bring in more robotics, to, to change the way we transact with money. And that hasn't all happened yet. So they want to keep things going. They need more time. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we've got these scariants and they try to, you know, drum up fear and get everybody back in their house. Um, I also, you know, people since I work with children's self-defense, you know, a lot of people think that the the book that Bobby Kennedy wrote, um, The Real Tony Fauci, is so powerful. It's number one on Amazon, was number one at USA Today so powerful and so many people are reading it that they're realizing that they're learning what is really going on. And again, the system is trying to counteract that with as much, uh, you know, propaganda as they possibly can put out. Right. That, that definitely is a possibility. Uh, in looking at this variant, I feel like there are a couple of things that seem just too convenient about it. One is that it's emerging in Africa just when there was a story in the Associated Press. And I think it got some play in other, um, mainstream outlets as well about how scientists are baffled at the low vaccination rates in Africa. Um, but how there's essentially, you know, COVID's not really an issue there. Um, and, uh, this potentially, uh, maybe a situation where there's going to be a, a push for uh, increased COVID-19 vaccine uptake among African countries um, because of the, I guess, uh, the, the travel bans uh, that they're implementing now against not just South Africa uh, or Botswana, but <laughs> I think it's uh, it, it's grown considerably, at least in the UK. Uh, they first issued a travel ban list yesterday on November 26, and they expanded it um, again today, uh, adding five or six, I think, more countries, you know, um, uh, on, on their so-called red list over there. So I think that may be uh, something potentially <laughs> to come of that, or maybe a, a justification for uh, COVAX to play a bigger role um, within African nations, uh, because it's sort of been sidelined, um, at least um, more than they probably expected to be. Because there's not a lot of interest, apparently, in a lot of African countries with take uh, among the populations um, in, right. in taking a lot of uh, in these vaccines. Mm -hmm. So I think I think you're absolutely right that they're they're trying as hard as they can to use this scariant idea on the Africans, but I don't know if the Africans will buy it. They're trying to sell at a cheap price using this Covax um, system trying to sell vaccines to African nations, but the Afri why would the African nations buy them if their people are not susceptible to the infection or they're already, you know, they're already immune. Now, South Africa actually had a lot of cases last year. So um, South Africa may have more than the rest of Africa, or maybe they just weren't reported, but um, it will, but because they've had a lot more cases, we will be able to discern whether people who are already sick from COVID are getting sick from Omicron again or not? Does pre-existing immunity 
right? Give you immunity to Omicron. Um, the other thing that's going on is by putting in these travel bans and making it seem like it's a lot more serious than it actually is, the people in power can control the stock markets around the world. So the stock markets dropped by about two and a half to three percent. Yes, The price of oil did also, which was a big problem uh, going into Thanksgiving for the Biden administration and poll numbers, a lot of uh, news articles about um concerns about rising gas prices and the Biden administration trying to do this uh, release from the strategic petroleum reserve for example that had no impact on the price at all um but uh, you know taking measures to try and lower the price of oil and you know this uh fearmongering around this variant happens and then it just uh plunges <laughs> the price of oil yeah. among other things too like the stock market yeah. you mentioned mm mm-hmm. But I think you know you you ban travel to countries that almost no elites go to and you you bring the stock market down. If you know that's going to happen, you can make a lot of money off of it. Let me um actually get back to one other thing that I forgot to talk about earlier, which is that another reason why I think the EUA products are being used illegally, and anyone who wants to bring a lawsuit should know about this, is that I read you that you need to be told the extent to which benefits and risks are known and unknown. That means you have to get the safety information that the federal agencies have now they're hiding it right you you get the the fact sheets which are the only thing that is given to a potential vaccinee person who's getting vaccinated is a fact sheet and the fact sheet has very little information about side effects and doesn't talk at all about what isn't known well it might there might be a, a disclaimer like well we we don't know everything but um, it doesn't give them details. And I think that since the statute requires that that information be provided is another um, reason why the process through which the EUAs are being used is illegal. And um, just want people to be aware of that. Uh, well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, one thing we didn't get to that uh, I did bring up, though, uh, I believe, is the the decision to approve um uh, the emergency use authorization in, in children. Um, and you talked a little bit earlier about natural immunity and all of this. And I know uh, that you said in a previous interview uh, that uh, several months ago, I think in uh, the middle of the year or so, it was known that that children in this particular age group had uh, were known to have or suspected to have natural immunity. The CDC has said 147 million Americans have already had COVID. And they've also said at other times that the rate of, of, uh, being recovered from COVID is highest in children and is probably highest in the five to 11 age group. So um, we, we can determine from that that more than half of the five to 11 year olds are already immune. And yet CDC wants to give them vaccine. Now we, we don't know what many of the side effects are, but we do know about myocarditis and myocarditis has been going up exponentially as you get younger. So it starts to be high in those aged about 40. And then at age 30, there's more cases, much more in males than females. And then in 20, even more. And then by the time you're a teenager, the rates are huge. And FDA has just thrown out, FDA and CDC, this idea that, well, it's going to be less in five to 11 year olds. Well, why would it be less? They had a clinical trial. They didn't, it only, it used uh, 1,100 kids at first uh, um, and then 
FDA told the uh, company Pfizer to add children to their trial for the five to 11 year olds, uh, they eventually got up to about 31 or 3,200 children. But the second group was only enrolled in the trial on average for 17 days after they were considered fully vaccinated, 17 days. And um, so they got eventually about 3,000 kids vaccinated and about 1,500 unvaccinated in the trial. And they claimed there were no cases of myocarditis, but in that group, which is reasonable if about one in three to 5,000 gets myocarditis, you know, it's reasonable that nobody in the trial got it. However, they didn't look very hard. They didn't draw blood before and after. They didn't do EKGs. And we know from other Pfizer trials that they have minimized the side effects. And when people had serious side effects, they claimed they weren't due to the vaccine without any justification for why they felt they weren't due to the vaccine. So basically, Pfizer is conducting fake trials. Pfizer is giving us, you know, the letter of the law without the meaning of the law. Let me explain to people, when Pfizer conducts a trial, they pay people to conduct these trials for them. And if the people who they pay conduct a trial that shows that the vaccine is safe and effective, they're going to be hired again for more trials. And if they find there are problems with the trial, they will not be asked back. And there's a lot of money in clinical trials, a lot of money. Right. Um, so, uh, and most of the people that did the trials, not all, were actually commercial uh, research organizations. These, these are people that just set up a company and they can pay people to be subjects. There are some Americans whose job is to be subjects in clinical trials, and that's how they make their money. Um, it's, it's a little sad to think of that, but it's true. And some of the trials were conducted at Kaiser. Some were conducted at the University of Cincinnati at, at universities. But many uh, of these people who were in the trial were obtained through commercial research organizations. And even at the University of Cincinnati, we know that one 12-year-old one who, who got seriously ill and is now in a wheelchair uh, and, and uses a feeding tube after being in the Pfizer trial for 12 to 15-year-olds, her side effect was never reported. And the doctor who was in charge of her trial, who she knew, Dr. Frank, at the University of Cincinnati, didn't report it. And he was the first author of the New England Journal published paper describing that clinical trial. And her side effects are not mentioned. They say none of the kids in the trial had a serious side effect, yet she's in a wheelchair and has a permanent feeding tube. Um, and somewhere it was said that her, her side effect was a stomach ache. So um, if that's what happens in a trial at a university in the United States, what can we assume is going on from these commercial research centers where yeah. trials in third world countries, you know, how much more honest are they going to be? So that's why I say the trials are basically fake trials trying to, you know, make it seem that the right things were done. And and FDA has not examined most of these trial sites. FDA did not do a single um, investigation of of a drug or vaccine manufacturer outside the United States um, in 2020 and has done very few um, this year. So uh, basically, 
you know, again, we're in a wild west where clinical trials are concerned. And I would advise your listeners not to offer themselves to be subjects in clinical trials because you really may not be informed what you're getting into. And if something happens to you, there will be no redress in the U.S. Well, what's interesting is that we have uh, the recently named uh, pick, I guess, of the Biden administration to permanently head the FDA, Robert Califf. Uh, he's an, a, a for, I guess, former FDA guy, but, uh, was hired out of the FDA by Google's, uh, subsidiary or life science subsidiary, uh, called Verily, which just a few days after he was nominated, uh, announced their plans to es- essentially remake the clinical research model, um, in the U.S., uh, with a big focus on uh, wearable devices, uh, which of course the FDA, uh, also approves medical devices, uh, like the ones that they're using in these trials, um, which had to do with a lot of smart watches, uh, sensors that you put between your mattress and your box spring, um, a, a whole mix of, uh, whole mix of stuff. And it's pretty uh, interesting that they're going to be essentially harvesting a lot of health data uh, from you, but there's not a lot of visibility into it. And uh, for people that are more interested in this, I would encourage you to look at something that Verily does called Project Baseline, um, which precedes COVID-19 and specifically about gathering health data about the American population and correlating it with gene, uh, their genetics, uh, genetic makeup. Uh, specifically with race. Um, and while Verily was also involved, uh, it, it's worth noting that they were also involved with, um, a couple scandals with the COVID-19, uh, PCR tests they were conducting, um, where they were accused of, um, improperly handling data, not properly informing people of the data they plan to collect, um, forcing people to link their test results from their PCR. Uh, with their uh, Gmail accounts and, and things like that. Um, so it's pretty interesting to see that particular um, executive in this, uh, one of the main people sort of involved in those efforts uh, being uh, named or nominated rather to head the uh, the Food and Drug Administration, which sort of seems like a... Um, I guess you could say the sort of uh, direction that the Biden administration has been going in terms of science, like the top science advisor um, to Biden being Eric Lander from the Broad Institute, which is very involved in a lot of this tech uh, gene editing uh, type stuff and sort of this effort to create, um, um, I not really create, but sort of, um, well, yeah, create a situation where a lot of these new un- sort of uh, under-tested uh, technologies become increasingly normalized. And of course, mRNA vaccines, uh, I guess, being a-, a gateway for a lot of this uh, other stuff. Um, any any thoughts about Robert Califf Merrill before we uh, sign off here? Well, I think one is that he has a lot of money in his retirement fund uh, invested in drug companies. And so how well they do is important to him. Another that I alluded to before is this this melding of industry and government. So it now seems that really it's the industries like Google and the pharmaceutical industry and other high tech industries and surveillance industries that are actually telling the government what to do and not vice Mm -hmm. versa. Right. The industry is putting their own people into the agencies to regulate themselves. Um, 
and and this is a, a, you know it's it's extremely disturbing i mean do we even have an independent government anymore uh yeah well that's the subject of a podcast i did a couple podcasts ago um <laughs> a couple episodes ago called the global public private partnership uh with ian davis for people that are interested in that um in that topic in terms of uh, the role national governments seem to be playing these days they're not really making policy they're implementing um policies dec- uh, dictated to them essentially by by a, a web of different uh, groups and industries um more often than not um re- regarding the google connection though i will say that uh, both eric lander and robert califf uh, obviously have direct ties to um eric schmidt the former uh, head of alphabet uh, who um until well they concluded their work i guess last year but the national security commission on artificial intelligence which eric schmidt headed but also involved the military um in qtel um and a lot of the big tech companies they said that the implementation of ai and this sort of you know more uh, technology which has a lot of surveillance applications they needed to apply that in healthcare first in order to be um uh leading economic hegemony essentially um with artificial intelligence algorithms um in, in competing with china and that you know the <laughs> it's very telling that now we're having a lot of the main uh, healthcare directives or healthcare advisors and potentially the head of the fda to uh, the biden administration being directly tied to <laughs> someone that uh, yes. was very clear exactly. about his agenda there mm-hmm well, uh, do you have any concluding uh, thoughts or anything you'd like to add about the situation here? Uh, any advice for people uh, where to go uh, or resources to seek out if they um, have experienced these mandates in their own lives and are seeking to challenge them? Well, my website uh, is anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com. And I have another MerrillNassMD.com, which uh, I've posted various articles, but you have to search for them. Children's Health Defense certainly has posted some and is involved with some of the lawsuits challenging the legality of this. Um, I I just would urge we're, we're in a situation where it seems like a totalitarian takeover is, you know, we're in the middle of it. And we still have the rule of law a bit. We still have a few honest judges, maybe more than that. And we have to use the law while we still can. Um, and I don't know why a lot of lawyers haven't come out already and started challenging. There are so many illegal things going on that the government is doing, that industry is doing. Um, and I try to, you know, provide these nuggets to, to the public as well as to children's health defense to help us move, move these forward and try to find areas where, where we can get a case that will make a difference. Um, and, uh, you know, if any lawyers are listening out there, you, you have a very critical role to play right now in trying to maintain democracy in the U.S. and the world. And you need to step out and you need to, you know, do things such as I'm doing, where you you give up the your the ways you usually make money, and you devote yourself to trying to save what we have now, because that's the most important thing there is to do in the world. And you're doing this for everybody, and also for your children and grandchildren. 
Um, so lawyers, look around, make yourselves useful, you know, be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Thank you. Thank you, Meryl. And thank you to everyone who uh, listened to this episode and who supports this podcast. This may uh, be my last episode uh, before I go on maternity leave. I'm hoping to record one more. But uh, at this stage, you never know when they will make <laughs> the baby will make its appearance. So I will uh, uh, hopefully have another one. But if not, um, this may be it for uh, and. Uh, probably a month or so, um, maybe a little longer, depends obviously on a lot of factors I can't really comment on in this point. Uh, but uh, in in the meantime, uh, feel free to share this episode and other episodes um, around. And if you enjoyed uh, this episode, uh, I would encourage you to go back to episode three uh, when Dr. Nass was on uh, the first time we talked a lot more about what she uh, started uh, this podcast with talking about the anthrax vaccine controversy um, and, and that situation as it relates to the 2001 anthrax attacks as well, for those that are interested. Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Nass, I think you uh, mentioned um, where people can find your work, your two websites. Is there any uh, where, where else where people can look for and support your work? Um, the, my interview with Dr. Mercola went into some of the same material and maybe some of it in a little more depth. That was about um, three or four weeks ago. Uh, I would urge people to, It's although Marcola takes his interviews off after 48 hours, other people have posted it on BitChute and I posted a link on my blog um, at the beginning of the month. So that may be helpful as well. Um, I've certainly, you know, my email is merylnass at gmail.com. And I do my best to answer people. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks again for your time. Thanks again to everyone who's listening. And uh, catch you all in the next episode, whether that's in a couple weeks or a couple months remains to be seen. Thank you. <laughs>